Good afternoon, my AOWs. If you don't know, that stands for Army of Women. I am so excited to be recording today. First and foremost, because I have a new setup, a new podcast studio I'm going to tell you about in a little bit. And I'm going to be telling you the top five takeaways that I took from the annual North American Menopause Society's meeting that was held in Atlanta in October 2022. So if you're ready for some exciting updates and a little bit about my life, stick around. Welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Today's podcast is sponsored by Sweet Spot Labs. Intimate dryness is one of the menopausal symptoms I get asked about most in my practice. And it's no wonder estrogen is to the vulva what collagen is to the face. As estrogen decreases, so does the natural moisture in your intimate skin, such as the labia and hair bearing areas, which can lead to itching, burning, and increased sensitivity. The product I recommend to rescue intimate skin from this discomfort is Rescue Balm from Sweet Spot Labs. No joke. It's an ultra rich intimate moisturizer that is 100% naturally derived and packaged with active levels of collide oatmeal, zinc oxide, sweet almond oil to soothe and protect intimate skin. I not only love what's in it because it really works, but also what's not in it. So Sweet Spot Labs has been pioneering clean, intimate skincare since 2003. And they formulate without any common irritants, allergens, hormones, hormone disruptors, or yeast food sources. Rescue Balm is free from water, preservatives, fragrance, silicones, propylene glycol, steroids, hormones, parabens, glycerin, and even from poor clogging ingredients like coconut oil, just to name a few. And like all Sweet Spot Labs products, Rescue Balm is hypoallergenic and clinically proven by unbiased third-party gynecologists and dermatologists to be non-irritating on intimate skin, even with daily use. That's why I really, really feel comfortable recommending it to anyone and everyone, including me, and even those with very sensitive skin. Visit Sweet Spot Labs and use code Dr. Hirsch for 20% off your first order. That's S-W-E-E-T-S-P-O-T-L-A-B-S.com and use code Dr. Hirsch for 20% off. I can't wait to be podcasting today and I kind of feel nervous. I don't know why. It's, It's as if I'm like brand new. Maybe it's because I'm in a new space and I think I'm very like spatically oriented and like even if I'm in an exam room and I'm not in the same exam room I'm always in, I walk around looking like an idiot trying to find where are the speculums, where are the pap smears, and I'm pretty sure my patients are like, does she know what she's doing? But I think anytime I'm in a new space, I feel really disoriented at first, and so I'm a little nervous recording today. Also, I'm really kind of sick. I sound extremely congested, and I think with all the traveling I've been doing recently, the last trip I went on... I just couldn't handle it. My little immune system was like, this is too much for me to handle. And I'm really, really congested. So my face feels full of mucus, which I'm, it is. So let me tell you a little bit. I am in uh, my new home and in the walk-in closet. If you keep going, 
and going, there's like an extra walk-in closet that's like closed off and it's probably like 50 square feet. I don't even know. I'm not good at estimating. And it's my new podcasting home. This is totally wild. I have a podcasting room. So now I I literally just before I sat down to record, I was going to record in and I have an actual office, but I'm like, what about that uh, what about that like teeny random storage room? So I have huge plans. I can't wait to like, I need to get like a neon sign. This says Health by Heather Hirsch on it. And, you know, like a whiteboard and start filming, you know, so I can maybe film some of my podcasts so you can see the audio, have it for TikTok. Oh my gosh. Literally, the ideas are busting out of me so fast and furious. I I am going to have trouble sticking to the content for the show today. I'm going to be telling you a little bit more about the behind the scenes. Uh, if you follow me on Instagram or TikTok, I'm at Heather Hirsch MD. I traveled down to Tampa, Florida and did three TV segments. So over my subscribers episodes, I'm going to be talking about that and a little bit about the fun of moving. So if you're not subscribed, you can check it out. That helps me uh, and gives you a little bit more behind the scenes of my life. So let's get into the meat of today. I wanted to recap the top five five things that I took away from the North American Menopause Society's annual meeting that I thought were brilliant. Now, I want to take a big step back and say the entire conference was wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, The scientific committee uh, chair and the scientific committee really put together an amazing uh, show, uh, basically, you know, just lined up such incredible speakers and came up with such important topics. I was really impressed this year. There was a lot more on hormone therapy than there has been in the previous years. And there are definitely times where it waxes and wanes in terms of, you know, things that all NAMS practitioners and other uh, attendees are interested in learning. But I was particularly happy to hear about this. And it was just chock full of so many good talks, amazing speakers. It was it was chef's kiss. It really was. So I'm going to go through my list here and it's not in order of, you know, one to five of best, most exciting, great groundbreaking. It's really just how I numbered them when I was thinking about this. And slight disclaimer, I'm every talk was so good. The disclaimer is the opening a symposium was on cardiovascular risk factors and how a woman so different than a man, different experiences, different hormones, you know, an, an obstetrical and gynecologic history that men don't have are so important in cardiovascular risk. And it was so intense and so full of good information that I really need to go back and take the nuggets out of it. So I'm actually picking five things that are were not in that first symposium on cardiovascular disease risks in women across the reproductive lifespan. And that's just because I need to go back and really listen to those lex- lessons two or three times. All right. So number one, Dr. Pauline Mackey, she is one of just one of the people that I aspired to have a personality-like, career-like fashion. She is in Chicago and practices psychology. She presented a paper on perimenopause. And in this paper, they were looking at, were there improvements to perimenopausal women's mood if given transdermal menopausal hormone therapy prior to their periods. And 
There was, which is really cool for a couple of reasons. First, I've been doing this for a while. The whole topic of using postmenopausal hormone therapy in perimenopause is such a sensitive topic for so many of my listeners. They will tell me their clinicians just say they can't do that or they won't do that or they don't believe in it or it's just so hard to, to get clinicians to prescribe MHT, menopausal hormone therapy, in perimenopause, even if a woman is still cycling. Quick plug in my course, I teach you how to have a conversation with your doctor and have them do this. And I've had some really good success. But this was really interesting because transdermal postmenopausal estrogen, um, at applying that when your estrogen is really dipping right before your period in perimenopause can cause all sorts of PMS and mood symptoms. And applying the patch really buffered those mood symptoms. And this was really so important to see. And actually, also because I truly think, and you'll see this in my upcoming book, Unlock Your Menopause Type, that some women's main symptom in menopause is mood disturbances, huge mood changes. And it starts in perimenopause. So to bring light to this subject, to highlight this subject, to study this and to show that there was an improvement in mood in perimenopause using the patch, this is really, really good stuff. So the conversation after she presented that research was, you know, why not use birth control pills, which a lot of gynecologists do. Again, going back to that source of frustration for so many of my listeners, I don't want birth control pills. Birth control pills can be really effective in perimenopause, to be honest, but some women choose not to, and some women don't have consistent mood issues. Their mood issues are really before the period. And so someone asked, well, you know, did anyone study this compared to birth control pills, or how do we know which one's better, or how do we know who to use birth control pills and who to use postmenopausal hormone therapy? And those answers are yet to be determined. But it's so cool that we're having this dialogue, this conversation, and we're starting to shed some light that transdermal lower dose, lower than birth control pills, lower dose postmenopausal hormone therapy can be really beneficial in perimenopause and may be, may be better suited for some women compared to others. You know, some women do great on birth control pills if they're having really heavy bleeding and it stops their bleeding. If they want contraception and don't, you know, want to take the risk for an unattended pregnancy. The, the patch won't do that. And so it really comes down to individualizing priorities and goals, but such good research. All right, on to number two. I loved hearing and learning about this. Artificial light at night when sleeping was associated with a increased risk for obesity. All right, so let me say that again. Artificial light, I'm talking the TV, ladies, the T. V. In your bedroom, when it's on at night, when you're sleeping or trying to sleep, because both are the same thing, you might be falling asleep, associated with increased risk of obesity, i.e. the TV in your bedroom can cause weight gain. Isn't that wild? <laughs> now, another reason I'm so stoked about this, you can tell when my brain is happy that it's been right about what it's been saying. Maybe this is all validation bias. Is this all Heather Hirsch validation? It could be. But no, I think this is really important. If you've listened to any of my sleep hygiene podcasts, or I've had so many great docs come on and talk about sleep and sleep hygiene, we know that one of the biggest things that you can do is to remove the TV from your bedroom. And I've been saying this for so long that the TV in the bedroom 
is a really problems, problem, problematic, problematic <laughs> a habit, but that so many of us get in it. And it's easy to understand why, right? It's fun. It's something to do when you finally lay down and go to sleep. When I was on the daytime show down in Florida, uh, one of the sleep tips we talked about was taking the TV out of your bedroom. She's like, oh, but I love just jumping in bed and clicking on the TV, you know? But um, why is it associated with obesity and weight gain? I don't know. We, I, my, the guess would be you're not getting good sleep with the TV on. And it's funny because most people who love the TV say, well, it soothes me to sleep. I think there's this false blanket of security that the TV is helping you sleep. Perhaps it's a way for you to try to turn your mind off, but not the best. It's kind of like what e-cigarettes are to smoking. I don't know. I'm making that up totally also. But it's not the best. And so the artificial light from the TV at night was associated with weight gain. So remove the TV from your bedroom. I don't think TV before bed is problematic. Um, one thing with streaming is that there's no stopping point. And like, you know, when we were kids or when you were a kid or whatever, you'd, there was no streaming services. When the show is over, the show is over, right? You turn it off. There was nothing else you could do. So TV is a little bit problematic in that you can watch and there's like no stopping cues. You know, I'm watching The Watcher. Go Naomi Watts. So good because she's got a new line out for menopause. And I just want to keep watching. But my husband, he's really, he's really like, no, nope, no, nope, we're done here. But TV, minus the whole, you know, being able to scroll forever, TV's okay. You just don't want to have it in your bedroom. You want your bed to be for sleeping and sex only. And when you jump into bed, you really want your body to think, this is where I sleep. And if you're watching TV, hanging out in your bed, you know, thinking subconsciously about things that are on while you're asleep, it's really going to negatively affect your sleep. If we're negatively affecting your sleep, we're negatively affecting your metabolism. So on to point number three, which rolls right off this, is that sleep hygiene is not equivalent to cognitive behavioral therapy. So sleep hygiene is not equivalent to cognitive behavioral therapy. All right, so sleep hygiene, those are basically, that's that probably, and I'm not a psychologist here, and that's who is presenting this talk on sleep. Two different two different um, speakers were giving these two lessons in the sleep symposium, which I just loved. And he was really teaching us that sleep hygiene, those are the tips that I've probably done a few podcasts ago in Protect Your Sleep at All Costs. Sleep hygiene is not the same as cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is really a step up from just, you know, changing your routine. You know, simple things that you can do to start with like removing the TV from your bedroom. That's a sleep hygiene tip. So what is cognitive behavioral therapy? Well, he provided some examples. So I'm going to go through some of those. The first is um, go to bed only if you're sleepy and don't stay in bed unless you're sleepy. It's hard for me to really distinguish how these are different than sleep hygiene, but I think this is a little bit more of training your clock of training your circadian rhythm and kind of pushing through a little bit. So it's a little bit more than just have a bedtime routine where you take a bath and you feel sleepy, which is more of a sleep hygiene tip. But this is really more of a getting yourself like boot camp, right? Getting yourself a little bit um, uh, on track to, to get better sleep. 
And so uh, when I was at Ohio State, we had wonderful uh, psychologists who really focused on sleep. And a lot of times um, they would, they would train women to actually start spending less time in bed. And at first that might sound counterintuitive if you're not sleeping well, but even at last year's NAMS, one of the things that we realized, one of the things that's been studied is a lot of postmenopausal women are getting crappy sleep, but just staying in bed longer, just hoping that they'll fall asleep or just hoping that they'll get that, you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes or hour back of sleep. And they're spending so much time in bed, really getting crappy sleep and just basically wasting time. And also when you're doing that, you're kind of training your brain that your bed is for other things besides for sleeping. It's for worrying. It's for begging. It's for praying, right? Please let me fall back to sleep. So the idea of more of the cognitive behavioral therapy um, is really to get yourself out of your bed if you're not falling asleep and only go to bed if you're sleepy instead of the like, please, maybe, oh, I wish if there's a chance if I fall asleep. So those are things that actually should probably be done with a trained clinician because we also want to make sure you're not, you know, going too hard the other way if you're a complete insomniac and never going to sleep. But um, they also recommend here, um, going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time. And this is really important. Again, that kind of is a lot of these, um, changes are really meant to really change the association between you, your brain and your bed and sleep. So I've talked a lot about this as well, which is if you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're tossing and turning more than a couple of minutes, get out of bed. It's really hard to do. Even for me, I promise you, I'm like, no, no, I'm going to fall right back asleep. Oh, I'm actually so tired. I'm actually tired. I don't want to get up. But if you, if you are spending a long, uh, a long periods of time tossing and turning, worrying, get up out of your bed, go to a different room, sit in a comfy chair and read a fiction book. Don't grab your phone. Again, no stopping point. Um, scary stuff, news. No, you want to get out of your bed and go read a fiction book and relax. Okay, ladies, let's move on after sleep. We're going to go to something that women are really interested in. Wait, yes, wait in midlife. So um, this one's a little bit of a quick one, but they were um, talking about the semi-glutides and efficacies in weight loss. You've probably heard, I can't imagine you haven't heard of the new medications that help with weight loss, Ozempic, Wegovy, and then Manjaro. I feel like you have to be living a little bit under a rock, but if you haven't heard of those, that's also okay too. These are um, each a different kind of classification. Um, well, Wegovy and Ozempic are, are semiglutides. Majaro is not a semiglutide, um, but these are three big names you're going to hear a lot in the news for their amazing efficacy in weight loss. Um, Ozempic and Wigovi, uh, originally FDA approved for diabetics. Majaro, I think also, but is now getting FDA approval for weight loss. I could be saying this wrong, but what the uh, speaker was demonstrating to us is how effective these medications are in weight loss. And Wigovi 2.4 milligrams compared with Ozempic was the most effective, resulting in a 14% body fat loss, whereas Ozempic, two milligrams, which is the higher dose, 
resulted in about 4% body fat loss, which is still actually quite good. Uh, it's just that Wigovi 2.4 milligrams was uh, the clear winner. Now, um, these were not compared to Majaro, um, and I believe prior studies have been compared compared uh, Wigovi Ozempic to Majaro, and Majaro is probably even more efficacious than that. Um, so what this means to me is that we have a new classification of medications that could be really real, 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 real game changers in helping with weight loss. And this is so important for many reasons. I don't even have to list it to you if, you, if you're one of my listeners. You probably you know, certainly can understand. Um, but there's a lot of talk about how dieting or diet culture is so bad for you. And I can't tell you how many, how many women I have seen who are counting calories and working their butts off and at the gym and this and that, and they're not losing any weight. And maybe it's because their clothes don't fit and it's bothersome to them or they want to look or feel a certain way or because they don't want to accumulate chronic diseases associated with excess weight like diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. It could be one of those or all of those. But we're going to really have some medications. They're going to be so much better targeted. And this is really exciting. And and. For me, it means I really need to know a lot about this because weight, something I get asked about all the time is usually, you know, one of the top concerns patients present to me with is the weight gain associated with menopause. We know it can be worse with surgical menopause. So we all, especially me, I got you, need to be paying attention to this new classification of medications. So I'm on it. All right. So the last one is um, a paper I presented on progesterone and looking at different formulations of progesterone to see if certain formulations of progesterone did not increase the risk of breast cancer above baseline. And I'm really excited to say in the paper that I presented is that micronized natural progesterone or permetrium was not found to increase the hazard ratio of breast cancer diagnosis in, uh, I think it was a large, large, large group of women. So um, it was 43,000 women with breast cancer matched to 430,000 women without breast cancer. And again, there was no increased risk of breast cancer in women who used micronized natural prometrium as their progesterone component formulation, I should say, right, with an estrogen for hormone therapy. And there was a slight increased risk on medoxyprogesterone acetate, MPA, the synthetic type of progesterone, and that had a hazard ratio of like 1.28. So if it's over one, that means associated positively. If it's under one, that means not associated. In the women's health study with PremPro, which was Premarin and medoxyprogesterone acetate, the synthetic estrogen and the synthetic progesterone, the hazard ratio of breast cancer was 1.26. So I'm throwing out a lot of numbers here, but that actually, that the hazard ratio in the WHI was 1.26. In this big study looking at MPA as the progesterone formulation, the hazard ratio is 1.28. So those really validate that data that the micronized natural progesterone is the is maybe the culprit for breast cell um, tumor growth on hormone therapy. And that micronized natural progesterone, which had a hazard ratio of 0.99 under one, it was not associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. And that correlates with many studies looking at prometrium as a form of progesterone 
also not showing a statistically significant increased risk of breast cancer. And this is really exciting. A lot of this is uh, very still debatable. There is lots of different studies, lots of different factors, lots of confounding. This was not a randomized controlled trial. And a randomized controlled trial will never happen again because it will be seen as unethical to put women on certain types of hormone therapy and see if they get breast cancer. I know it's, it's when you say it like that, you're like, yeah, I, I can see why that's true, Heather. But, but so we'll, we'll leave that there. We really have to use perspective studies. We really have to use the meta-analyses, which is a study of all the studies that we have. It's the best thing that we can do. And there was so much talk after this, this paper that I presented. Um, it was such a robust and interesting conversation. And this led to something that I talk about on my show all the time. What about using a progesterone-releasing IUD? I want to take a huge step back just to remind you that those of us who are menopause experts, uh, we feel as though it's not the estrogen component that increases the risk of breast cancer. It's the progesterone. So all the debate on what is the best type of progesterone, what's the safest type of progesterone, you know, use it nightly, continuously, blah, blah, blah. That's why everyone was so excited about this this, um, paper. And after the symposium, we're really active and asking so many questions. So someone brought that up and and someone from the audience um, mentioned a Sweden study looking at women using progesterone releasing IUDs and doing breast biopsies, poor patients in the study, oh my, my, showing, you know, absolutely no activity on the breast, which is maybe what you would hypothesize since the progesterone in an IUD is not supposed to be traveling systemically. And so then a lot of people were like, well, even though if we, we, it sounds like, it sounds like micronized progesterone is the best, but is it better than an IUD? And we don't know yet, but it was just such a fun uh, discussion. So many brilliant women um, really just debating uh, so much of the scientific research and the data. I really just enjoyed it so much. I was so honored to get to present and speak about this topic. I think so important because one of the biggest barriers for many women to consider starting hormone therapy is the fear of breast cancer. Overall, this was an incredible conference. Uh, Please also know, I really want to make another disclaimer that all of the talks on cardiovascular disease in women were incredible. And I didn't include them in my top five recap just because I want to do my due diligence and come back and do a whole podcast on just those facts on what's new in cardiovascular disease risk and hormone loss. Okay, so I'm going to do a whole separate talk on that because I just, they, they were just as amazing, just as amazing. You guys are the best audience. So wonderful. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy getting to make this type of content for you, putting it out into the world, hearing that you really like it and appreciate it. It is just a joy of mine. So head over to my subscriber only show. Quick plug if you want to hear all about the new studio, what I'm planning on doing, um, and just how excited I am to be able to Uh, turn a little bit into this more public-facing career and providing so much education and information for all of y'all, clinicians, non-clinicians, smarty pants, all of you amazing kick-ass moms and grandmothers, you know, daughters, nieces. You guys are seriously, seriously what, what 
continues to fuel this um, drive to to uh, give you give you what you want give you what you want to know. All right. Thank you so much. Please leave a star review if you have time and I'll see you guys next week. Bye everyone. If I haven't already done so, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to my show. Consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. Also, if you love the show, your stars or a quick review could really help other women who are searching for information on menopause and midlife around the globe find this show. If you want to work with me, consider the Reclaiming Menopause Masterclass. The link for that is in the description to this show. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all your support, and I'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Episode.